Yesterday, I was sitting with T out on the deck for that brief window of sunshine in the morning. It was wonderful. It was warm. I was in a t-shirt, Water Avenue coffee in hand, and we were just having a nice chat, but we were actually in conversation around some of my wife's health issues. Most of you know she has a chronic health condition and Lyme disease and had a recent diagnosis um, from a neurologist that's pretty bad and has to do with the muscles in her face and the long-term stuff. And we don't know. That's not a for sure thing yet. We're going to wait for a second and third diagnosis. But she was just chatting with me about, you know, a few years ago when her health, um, which has been not great for a long time, but really got a lot worse about three years ago, she had this moment of, like, intense prayer with God. Not, like, daily prayer, like, intense, you know what I mean? Like, intense prayer with God. And where she basically, in her own language, said, God, I'm up for whatever. Like, if it's cancer, I'll deal with cancer. If it's a wheelchair, I'll deal with that. Just please do not let it be my face. Anything but my face. And now the diagnosis is in, and it's her face. And uh, we were chatting this morning en route to the morning gathering, and we were laughing about Teresa Vibelio's line about the dark night of the soul, which we'll talk about in a few weeks ago, where she once said to God, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few of them. And, and there's something, tr- she said that, not me, again, I promise. Um, I'm just the messenger. But there's something to that. Have you ever been at a spot in your life where, man, you're up against a wall like that, and you just think, man, how do I handle this? Where is God in this? Or is he anywhere? Or am I alone in it? And how do I carry this with grace as an apprentice of Jesus? John chapter 21, this is our third and I promise final week in John 21. There's just so much depth to the story. We left off last week with this idea of the first and the second half of life in Jesus' language when you were young and when you were old. Just one more layer before we move on next week. John chapter 21, verse 18. Holy Spirit, just come. Just ask for your presence and your voice to settle over our community, over my mind right now eradicate just all that stuff in me that isn't right. And would you just, in grace, speak through me and through the scriptures to all of us here. Verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Notice something about Jesus' language on the two halves of life. The verbs are active for the first half. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. Clearly, as my son, he dressed himself, I promise. But they are passive for the second half. When you are old, somebody else will dress you and lead you where you do not even want to go. Active and passive. What Jesus is hinting at here is an idea that many of us feel in particular as we age, that, or at least the farther we get down the path of the spiritual journey, the more our apprenticeship to Jesus feels less and less active and more and more passive. Put another way, it feels less about doing practices to grow and mature in God and more about saying yes to what God is doing in us, in particular through our pain, which for Peter would be his death and for you or for I could be any number of things. Now, what we talk about when we talk about 
active and passive. In church history, it's called exactly that, active and passive spirituality. If that language is new to you, don't feel out of touch or bad at all. It's ancient language, not modern language. In fact, passive has negative connotations in modern English. I hear passive and I think of passive-aggressive, like, Gerald, it's so great that you're always on time. Um, Or whatever. (laughs) He's actually quite punctual. You would not imagine that with his personality. He's actually quite punctual. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) I'm actually quite Um, (laughs) passive-aggressive. True story. So I'm good at it. But I think of passive-aggressive, or I think of a passive personality, as in somebody with no spine or backbone. But the ancients don't mean it in a negative light at all. And sadly, it's an idea that has been lost to the dust of time, kind of covered over by the Western Church's march of upward mobility, which is tragic because it is a key idea in spiritual formation. It's honestly changed the way that I follow Jesus. I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, but my hope for tonight and teaching on this is that it does the same for you. Now, to start off, just a little bit of history. I'm not sure who first coined the language of active and passive spirituality. It's a little over my pay grade. I first read it in the literature of St. John of the Cross, whom we'll talk about in a few weeks, and his spiritual director, Teresa of Avelia, both of whom were master teachers of the way of Jesus and really experts in the life of the soul. One of the deep passions of Bridgetown Church is that in the Western Church, there is a need to remarry spirituality and psychology. Prior, just if that sounds suspicious to you, prior to the Enlightenment, there was little to no division between the two. That's all late modern stuff. Both were the domain of the priest, or if you're in England, the vicar, who was called the cure of souls from the Latin cure, which can be translated care of or cure of. So the spiritual leader in a community was expected to be an expert in the life and the healing and the growth of the soul. Nowadays, we think of a pastor more as an evangelist or a CEO or a community organizer or a life coach or whatever, which is fine. But the pastor's role used to be much more of a spiritual director. He's basically there to preach a sermon and help you pray. But in the Enlightenment, as the West began to secularize, spirituality became the domain of faith and was left in the hands of the church, whereas psychology became a separate thing, was put into the hands of science and the university. Again, not all bad, but when you apply the scientific method to the soul, you run in all sorts of problems. For one, science is supposed to be, at least in theory, value-free. So in a scientific and secular approach to, say, therapy, you can't um, tell a patient what to do or not do in a situation. That's a value judgment about good and evil, which means that it's often far better at diagnosing pain than at healing it, not to mention how a Freudian worldview is at odds with that of Jesus. But St. John and Teresa are great examples of what used to be far more the norm in that they are as much psychologists as they are theologian. Dr. Gerald May, who's a psychiatrist and spiritual director, has done extensive work on John and Teresa's writings, makes the case that their insights into the inner dynamics of the human person were hundreds of years ahead of both Freud and Jung, but far more accurate. I say all that just to give a little weight to the fact that John and Teresa taught there are two dimensions to our apprenticeship to Jesus, active and passive. Now, let's define terms. What they meant by active spirituality is the aspects of our apprenticeship to Jesus where it feels like we do something. It feels like self-effort empowered by grace. 
Gerald May explains it this way. The active dimension of the spiritual life consists of what feels like one's initiative, choice, or effort. The passive dimension seems to be more initiated and carried out by God. Now notice this is emotional language, not theological. So they're not calling it a question, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. They're just naming the felt experience of life with Jesus. So active spirituality is things like, number one, the practices or spiritual disciplines. You wake up early in the morning or whatever time is your style, and you read through the scriptures or you pray or you turn the ear to God or you practice Sabbath or you come to church. This right here is active spirituality, what we're doing right now. Or you join a community and break bread and open a glass of wine around the body and the blood of Jesus on Tuesday night. Or, too, it's the hard work of, say, therapy or dealing with your past or a father wound or your family of origin or the shadow side to your personality. Or, three, it's what my Calvinist friends call mortification. I almost want to become a Calvinist just so I can use that language with authenticity because it's so wicked awesome. Mortification or what Paul in the New Testament calls the crucified life where you mortify as in mortal, as in put to death, or you crucify your sin what the Benedictines called a covenant of repentance, a lifelong commitment to always repent day after day after day as you deepen your formation into the image of Christ. It's what most of what we have been teaching on for the last two and a half years with practicing the way. And with active spirituality, it feels like we're in charge. It feels like if we don't do it, it won't happen, right? If I don't wake up tomorrow morning and read... Romans chapter, whatever I'm in, I think I'm a little bit behind. No, Corinthians, whatever I'm in, it's amazing, by the way. Um, Then it won't happen, and it's goal-based. We often have a sense of success or failure. You're either practicing Sabbath or not. You're either at church or not, or whatever it is. And it feels like more of a linear journey. I almost feel like I could sit down with a 20-year-old and walk them through active spirituality over 10 years. Let me teach you the seven core spiritual disciplines. Let me teach you emotionally healthy spirituality. Let's do the past work, inner healing. Let's do some deliverance stuff. Let's do your Enneagram number. There it goes four years. And then whatever. Like, I almost feel like I could take somebody on a linear journey up to a point. You could say that active spirituality is our responsibility. It's the role that we play in our spiritual formation. Passive spirituality, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. It's the aspects of our apprenticeship to Jesus where it feels more like God is the one doing something in us. Again, May, the passive dimension seems to be more initiated and carried out by God. And usually it's things that are, one, out of our control, and two, against our will. Things like suffering. Wherever suffering comes from, and down through church history, followers of Jesus disagree and diverge on the origin point of suffering. Some people think that it all comes from God for his glory and your good. Um, And we have great respect for people who think that. We just really disagree with that. So we would um, fall more into the working theory that suffering comes from many other sources, not just one, from malevolent spiritual evil in the universe, if you want to call that the devil or the demonic or whatever. It comes from mistakes that we make, sin that we do, sin that is done to us by other people, other mistakes. It comes from just this world on this side of resurrection, suffering under the leadership of a humanity that is corrupt. It comes from chaos theory. I was there for Jurassic Park. I know a little bit about chaos theory, right? It comes from all sorts of other sources. But however you interpret the evil in your life, whether you default to God's in control or you view it as from another source, either way, 
God often does some of his best work in our suffering. In fact, in my theological paradigm, I think God is so good at using our suffering for his glory and our good, even when it's antithetical to his will, that we often blame it on him because what comes out of it, as painful as it is, is so good. Another example would be just accepting our limitations in our season of life be that singleness, be that marriage, be that little children, be that no children and empty nest, be that dying, be that your parents dying, whatever your season of life is. In our culture where the whole thing is built around like FOMO and you only live once and carpe diem and see like limitations feel like a form of suffering. They're actually not. They're actually a form of God's grace to you, but they feel in our culture often like a form of suffering. My point is, with passive spirituality, it feels more, again, emotional language, not theological, it feels more like God is in charge. It's not at all goal-based. You don't, like, set a goal to suffer, you know, these, in these three areas over the next ten years. Like, this is my life plan, or whatever. And it doesn't feel linear at all. You just feel like, what in the world is going on in my life? And what is Jesus doing in this? And is Jesus in this at all? And it usually doesn't make sense until the other side, if ever. And our responsibility is not to do anything. It's just to welcome God's work with joy and trust rather than resist it with anger and resentment. Now, I would argue that Jesus' most in-depth teaching on this idea, he doesn't use the language of passive spirituality, but the idea, I would argue the go-to text is Matthew chapter 6. In fact, feel free to turn there if you want right now. You don't need to. You're happy to just listen. Matthew chapter 6, it's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. If you know anything about the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus' most important collection of teachings. It's made up of 14 mini-teachings. This one is by far the longest. It's three to five times longer than any of the others. And I would argue it is one of the most misread teachings of Jesus in the entire New Testament. Um, The abbreviated form is here. Jesus opens with, do not worry about your life. And he has this little kind of like hippie moment about look at the birds of the air. And it's like he's just really relaxed and chill. and Don't worry about it. Then he has a beautiful line, see how the flowers of the field grow. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And then the epic line at the end, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So many people misread this as if the point of Jesus' teaching is, hey, don't worry about your life, everything will work out fine. If that's what he's saying then he is radically out of touch with reality, and with all due respect, he's wrong. But if he's saying something else, which he is, notice the line that we all skip about the grass of the field. We love that. Oh, it's so cute, the grass, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. You ever, like, skip over that? You're like, oh, that doesn't feel good. That must not mean what I think it means. Must not mean what it says. I don't want that. How is that good news? Wait a minute. Jesus is, unless if I'm missing this, and I'm not alone here, Jesus is not saying, hey guys, don't worry, everything will work out fine. He's saying, don't worry. As an apprentice of me, you can live, not me, John Mark, me, don't speak for Jesus. He's saying, as an apprentice of him, you can live a life free from anxiety. You don't need to worry about all the stuff that everybody worries about, that it's human and normal to worry about. And the key is not to delude yourself into thinking nothing bad will happen to you. 
The key is to come to a place of such radical acceptance and trust in God that no matter what happens to you, if you die tomorrow, worse, if you're thrown into the fire, you're okay. Because the primary desire of your heart is to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and nothing can take that from you. Some would argue that's the central message of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, which again, I think people misread as a list of virtues. I don't think it's a list of virtues at all. I think it's a list of the kind of people that everybody else in his day said are cursed, and he's saying, actually, you can live a life that is blessed because you can have access to the Father through me. Some would say the central message of Jesus is anyone can have access to the Father through me. That's it, that's good news. You don't have to be poor, you don't have to have a dream life, you don't have to have perfect health, you don't have to, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. Anyone can have access to the Father and no one can take access from the Father away from you. As Paul writes later to the Romans, not death, not life, not principalities, not powers, not height, not depth, nor any other created thing, nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. What Jesus is getting at here is, I think, the most radical idea in the Sermon on the Mount. A life, can you imagine a life free from all anxiety because you are so centered on the kingdom and its righteousness as the ultimate aim of your heart that everything else, you still have desires for it, but you no longer need anything else to live a happy, healthy, and loving life. That is radical. Now the ancients, yes, the ancients called that active, I'm sorry, passive spirituality. The Ignatians later called it, the Jesuit order later called it indifference. And again, they don't mean what me mean by indifference. They mean where you no longer are in slavery to your attachment. Some more recent teachers call it detachment. But in the Christian tradition, detachment is very different from in the Buddhist tradition. The goal is not to detach from all desire. It's rather to reorder your desire to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So if you are single and you ache for a spouse, the goal from the Jesus tradition, as I understand it, is not so much to get rid of all desire for marriage. It's to reorder your desire where the kingdom and his righteousness, that is what you live for. That is your emotional source of happiness and life and joy. And it doesn't mean you don't want marriage or don't want a spouse or don't want a companion, but you don't need it in order to live a happy and a flourishing life. Again, that's radical. One teacher, Robert Mulholland, defines detachment this way. A deep inner posture of joyful release of our life and being to God in absolute trust without demands, without conditions, and without reservations. It is neither a passive resignation, more on that in a minute, nor a fatalistic acquiescence to whatever comes. It is rather a consistent posture of actively turning our whole being to God so that God's presence, purpose, and power can be released through our lives into all situations. Now, even though this is my first time teaching on active and passive spirituality, it's actually a key facet and has been for a while in our working theory of change. Most of you will recognize this paradigm from the beginning of our Practicing the Way series. We come back to this every year at the Vision series. If you've been through our basics class and route to a Bridgetown community, hopefully you know this like the back of your hands. If not, feel free to go back and listen to the podcast. Basically, this is just our working theory of change. This is what all of our church is built around. 
And it's our hypothesis that we are transformed into the image of Jesus, which again for us is a key facet of the goal, what this whole thing is about, through teaching, or you could also use the language of truth as we rewire the mental maps in our brain by which we show up to reality around the mental maps of Jesus in order to show up to reality better and flourish and thrive by practice or more specifically the practices or the spiritual disciplines as we set our mind and our body before the spirit and truth of God through Sabbath and church and scripture and prayer and silence and solitude and fasting through community as we do life, not just here on Sunday, but do life around a table where we know and are known, people in our neighborhood around the bread and the cup. And of course, all of this is empowered by the Holy Spirit at each turn. This happens over time. It's not a quick fix. There's no silver bullet. This is a lifelong thing. And here's the theologian Jay-Z yet again, two weeks in a row, through the hard knocks of life, or more specifically through pain and through suffering. Now, Um, Notice there's a line kind of between the top and the bottom, and it says active on the top and passive on the bottom. That's been there for years, and occasionally I get a question about, like, what does that even mean? Because I never talk about it. Well, what I mean is the top of that is basically active spirituality. Again, that's our part in this partnership, you know. And again, this is not calling into question any of the Reformation doctrine. It was Augustine, who was basically the pre-Calvinist Calvinist, who is famous for his line, without him we can't, but without us he won't, right? There's a partnership in our spiritual formation between us and Jesus. Our part in that is basically teaching to expose our minds to truth, whether that's reading the scripture or podcasting or here at church, what you're doing right now, and thank you for your attention and your grace and patience with me, or reading a book or whatever it is, through the practices, again, as you set yourself before God, through community, through the Holy Spirit. And this is active, meaning it basically will or will not happen based on your agency and your freedom. So it's our decision whether tonight we like stay up late watching Game of Thrones and filling our mind with porn and oversleep in the morning and rush out the door to work, or if we discipline our mind as the gateway to our soul, we honor God with our imagination, and we instead go to bed at a decent hour, and maybe before we fall asleep, we read a psalm or a story from the Gospels, or we just fall asleep with our mind on the goodness of God as it's a key time at a neurological level. I understand just enough about neuroplasticity to be dangerous, so I really should not say anything here, but it's a key time when you wake and when you go to sleep are two of the key times for your brain and the generation of new thoughts and new neural pathways through your system. So something, ha- so it's one of the worst things you can do is stay up late watching stuff, filling your mind with crap. One of the worst things you could do for your mind. But we slow sleep, we allow our minds to sit there, we wake up in the morning, whatever it looks like for you, for me it's before I ever turn on my phone, there's a psalm, there's a moment in the life of Jesus, and there's just a moment of waiting on God in the quiet. Sometimes just in my own groggy early morning way, I'm not much of a morning person, so it's not like revival, I'm not like interceding in tongues naked on the roof or anything, I'm just (laughs) in my bathrobe trying to like focus my mind. But having those moments, and that's just a couple days a week, but you know, um, just having those moments of God, my ear is open. Is there anything you want to say? Anything you want me to know? What would be pleasing to you today? How can I serve you? Is there anybody else that you want me to have my eyes open for today? Anything you want me to do? Just an open ear to hear God's voice over your life. Now, my point is whether, those are two kind of extreme options, but that's basically up to us. 
That's, Jesus is not going to do that work for us. Right? It's basically up to us what we do. It's active. Passive spirituality is the stuff that we have little to no control over, like how long we live. And I know, email me your thing about a plant-based diet. I'm already there, okay? We'll live a decade longer. Fantastic. But, um, like, we don't have a lot of say over how long we live, even over the seasons of our life. And some of it we have a say, or we think we have a say, but we just, so many things are out of our control. How many children come into our life if you're in a marriage? What those children are like? I, some of you have, like, the most calm, well-behaved children I've ever met. I hate you. What is? It's not fair, right? I feel like I'm raising either a future world changer or delinquent, and I'm not sure. It depends on what day of the week, right? Whatever it is. But these things that are just the time of our life, the seasons of our life, it's so out of our control. And then just the pain and the suffering that comes to us, so much of this is passive, meaning it's out of our control, and all we can do is say yes. Now, my point is that these two work together in our spiritual formation, and we need both. So just before we move on to prayer, just a few thoughts on this idea of active and passive spirituality. First off, active spirituality will only take you so far. What many find, this has been my experience and the experience of so many people that I've been around as a pastor over the years, many years now, is that if, let's say the spiritual journey is a kind of A to Z, like let's map it that way. It's not that linear, but let's just pretend it is. And let's say if all you do is the standard American formula for Christianity. Basically, you come to church once in a while. The average, I think, American churchgoer is 1.4 times a month. You occasionally read your Bible and pray, whatever it looks like, and you just try to be a good person and try to have a few Christian friends. That's kind of how you follow Jesus. And again, no judgment. We're just, wherever you're at with that, we're so happy you're here. Some of you aren't even following Jesus yet. We're so happy you're here. But if that's your approach, then let's say you might make it from A to C or D. You will grow a little bit, but there will be not much difference between you and pretty much anybody else on the streets of our city. If you want to really grow and mature into Christ's likeness, you need to adopt active spirituality and begin to work the spiritual disciplines into your body. Come up with a rule of life that works for you, your personality, gender, stage of life, all of that, sure. But you need to adopt one in order to get very far. You need to do some of the emotionally healthy stuff. Deal with some of your past. Figure out your personality. Move forward. Get healing. Get freedom from sin or addiction, whatever it is, in order to move forward. Now, that kind of active spirituality might take you from CD to, I don't know, MLNOP, even if you're lucky, right? You might make it way down the path over five or ten years. But what many find is that then they begin to get a little stuck again. And this might happen a decade into apprenticeship to Jesus, or sooner or later. They might, or at least just slow down a little bit in the growth and maturity. And they still grow, but it's just, man, it doesn't feel like it used to. And that's because now you're hitting up against the really deep stuff in you deep habits in your mind and body of sin, or if you don't like that language, wound, or whatever you want to call it, stuff that's jacked up in you, and that has been like literally wired into your neurology and is in your body, where you need healing and freedom from Jesus. Often the way that we then move forward again in growth and maturity and even accelerate into that is through passive spirituality. Put another way, it's through pain and suffering and the way of the cross, and asking God, what do you have for me in this pain? And this is where God does some of his deepest work in our transformation, the really deep level, what a few weeks ago we defined as our trust structures 
or what Thomas Keating calls our emotional programs for happiness, the things we think we need to live a happy life, what, again, our Calvinist friends, they're getting a lot of airtime tonight, um, what they call our idols. I love this from Dr. May. Regardless of how a compulsion, a need to do something, whatever that is, it could be check Instagram, it could be hire a prostitute, it could be anything in between, right? Regardless of how a compulsion appears externally, underneath it is always robbing us of our freedom. So what our city often screams is our freedom to do whatever we want is actually slavery. We act not because we have chosen to, but because we have to. We cling to things, people, beliefs, and behaviors, not because we love them, but because we're terrified of losing them. In a spiritual sense, the objects of our attachments and addictions become idols. We give them our time, energy, and attention, whether we want to or not, even and often especially when we're struggling to rid ourselves of them. Does this sound familiar? We want to be free, compassionate, and happy, but in the face of our attachments, We are clinging, grasping, and fearfully self-absorbed. This is the root of our trouble. Gerald May's summary of John and Teresa's view of the spiritual journey, so this is his summary of their summary of the New Testament, is that it's a journey from slavery to attachment to freedom to love. From slavery to attachment, the things that we think we need to live a happy life, to freedom, to love. Let me flesh this out with a few very practical examples. Marriage. A lot of you in this room um, have a spouse. As long as you or I are in slavery to our attachment to an ego ideal, meaning an idealized vision of what your marriage should be or even could be, what your spouse could be or should be, or you wish he or she was. As long as you think that you need that kind of marriage, that kind of spouse, that kind of relationship, that kind of you fill in the blank to live happy, you're actually in slavery and you're, worst of all, not free to love your marriage and your spouse as they actually are. You are a slave to a fantasy rather than the beneficiary of reality. And because you're not free to enjoy your spouse as they actually are, with all the good in them and all the less than awesome in them, right? As they actually, you're not actually free to enjoy them as they are. And so what most of us do is we manipulate, we judge, we criticize, we suggest, we elbow, we cajole, we wound each other. What should be the place of our greatest safety becomes the place of our greatest critique because we're in slavery. Parenting, a lot of parents in the room tonight. As long, let me just talk as a dad, very honestly, as long as I am in slavery to my attachment, to my ego ideal for my children, and trust me, do I ever have one, my children will get a 4.0. That was one of the things I just assumed. All three of my children, of course they will get a 4.0 all the time from kindergarten on. So that's not going so hot. Um, they, they will go to a prestigious college that they get a scholarship for, because I'm a pastor, so, but they're 4.0, so we're all good, right? Um, at least one of them will get a PhD and do all sorts of things to prop, prop up my fragile ego to make me feel like I'm a parent of an elite, not just a grown-up homeschooler who's still quite insecure. As long as I need that to be happy, 
I need my children to perform to fit this ego ideal that I have in my mind. As long as I'm in slavery to that, I'm actually not free to love my children as they are. My firstborn son's amazing. He has more personality than I will ever have over a decade, right? He's not a 4.0 student. He's really smart. Hates school. Just not the right personality for it. As long, so then I thought, okay, well, it's, it's my next son, Moses. He's more introverted. He's calmer. He'll be the PhD. He'll save the Comer name, right? <laughs> Dr. Comer. One of us will get there eventually, you know? Oh, no, we just got an email from his teacher. Oh, wow. Oh, he hates school, too. Oh, he just wants to draw all day long. And he's quite a good artist. You should see he just started an art business. It's illegal, but he's selling his paintings at school <laughs> every day. We literally got an argument last night about how much to pay. Luke, you started over here over for dinner at your house, and you paid him like $25 or some obscene amount of money for a Marvel character, and now he thinks everything is worth that. He's like, oh, no, Dad, I can get it. I'm like, I think you should start like $5 or $10. He's like, oh, Dad, most kids at my school get so much more allowance than I do. They have tons of money. It's ridiculous. So anyway, my, my point is, as long as I am in slavery to this attachment, and I feel like I need it in order to live. My children must be this type of child. They must do this type of thing. They must perform in this way. Not only am I not free to love them as they actually are, beautiful and wonderful, with all of the good and bad in each one of them, just like in me and in you, I actually will wound them. I will manipulate them. I will hurt them. I will harp on them. I will criticize them. I will make them feel insecure, and they will enter adulthood walking with a wound rather than empowered to be who God made them to be. Single people, I forgive the marriage and family examples. It's where I'm at. I know it's not where a lot of you are at. But there are so many ways to apply this. I've just been thinking, this is an odd one, but all week long about body image. Like in our hyper, even in our city where it's a little bit better than most, but still, man, the obsession over body image and sexualization in our culture right now. As long as we are in slavery to our attachment of the ego ideal of what we want our body to look like, man, we're not free. Not only to love our body as a gift from God and the place where we experience God's love, but to use our body as an agent of blessing to others where we don't even think about ourselves. We're just there to live in love. As long as you're, and feel whatever it is, as long as we're in slavery to our attachment, to our dream career, dream job, whatever. We're not actually free to love the life, the job, the career that we actually have. And again, this isn't just about happiness. This is about love. Happiness is a means to an end. Miserable people tend not to be the most loving people. Happy people tend to have an easier job of loving well. So we want to be happy because more than anything, we want to live in love. My point is, at some point, whether it's your body or your career or your boyfriend that you're thinking about getting married to, but he's just not quite perfect, Uh uh-huh, and he's not, trust me, and it's actually worse than you think. Um, (laughs) But whatever it is, as long, at some point, we have to come, I'm just here to encourage you. (laughs) Had a lot of criticism over the years, never of being self-help, not once. Um, At some point... My point is, all of us, whatever your stage of life, status, whatever, we all at some point have to come to face the reality of our life. Not the fantasy of the could be, the reality with a heart full of gratitude and joy. 
this is my body. Okay. This is my Enneagram number. Okay. This is my relationship status and my age. Okay. This is my child. Okay. This is my job. Okay. This is my story. This is my sexual abuse. This was my mistake. This is my wound. This is my family. This is my background. Okay. The goal for us as followers of Jesus is to come to the place down the road when we're there where we calmly hold reality in our mind and are at peace and even full of love. Some things can only be said in poetry. I guess I'm getting old because I love poetry lately. But both St. John and Teresa were poets. I love this from St. John. Some consider him to be the best Spanish poet of all time. To reach satisfaction in all, desire satisfaction in nothing. To come to possess all, desire the possession of nothing. To arrive at being all, desire to be nothing. I love this even more from Teresa. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing make you afraid. All things pass, but God is unchanging. Patience is enough for everything. You who have God lack nothing. God alone is sufficient. All that to say, active spirituality is great. You know I am all for it. We've been teaching on it for years but to progress, to move forward to love, we have to also embrace passive spirituality to do the really deep work that sometimes, if your life is anything like mine, only pain can do. Secondly, we progress on the spiritual journey by a simple combination of the two. Another ancient teacher of active and passive spirituality was Jean-Pierre de Cassade, a French Jesuit from the 17th century, contemporary with reformers, though he stayed in the Catholic Church, but was a reformer at heart. He wrote a little book called Abandonment to Divine Providence, in which he lays out his working theory of spiritual formation, or what he called sanctity. And I'm, I'm so excited. I've been waiting for months to read this to you. Just sit in this. I get really excited about books, in case you don't know that. But, um, man, just... I, I literally have this in my little journal. I read this all the time. Just sit in this with me. Would to God that all men could know, and this is several hundred years old, forgive the male-centric language, but that all men could know how very easy it would be for them to arrive at a high degree of sanctity. I wish you could all know how easy it is to grow and mature to a high degree. Well, how? They would only have to fulfill the simple duties of Christianity— meaning just practice the way of Jesus, the basic kind of rule of life of the spiritual disciplines, how you follow Jesus, the basic, the simple duties, and of their state of life, single, marriage, young, old, career, whatever, to embrace with submission the crosses belonging to that state. All of you have crosses. No matter what your state of life is, it has a cross or more than one with it. To embrace with it and to submit with faith and love to the designs of providence, capital P, whether you interpret the events in your life as from God or Satan or chaos theory or your own stuff or your boss or whatever, however it comes from, to, embrace, to submit with faith and love to God's designs in it. Either way it works. The passive part, there's our language, 
of sanctity is still more easy since it only consists in accepting that which we very often have no power to prevent. And in suffering lovingly. Love that language. Suffering lovingly. That is to say, with sweetness and consolation. Those things that too often cause weariness and disgust. Once more, I repeat, in this consists sanctity. That's his formula for how you grow and mature in one paragraph. You're like, you could have said the last two and a half years in just one paragraph. But that's it. You just, I love how simple it is. Fulfill the simple duties, practice the way of Jesus, and suffering lovingly. What are the crosses of your state of life? You submit to the designs of love in them. Third, as a general rule, the first half of life is more active and the second is more passive. We see that in Jesus' word to Peter. When you were younger, insert all the active verbs. When you are old, insert all the passive verbs. I think that for many of us, that's not just for Peter. For many of us, we feel that progression as we age, that shift from more active to more passive. It's always both and. As you age, you never mature beyond the basics. I'm sure that Damian Lillard and Steph Curry both show up for practice and run drills. Sports analogy, you're welcome. <laughs> Had to Google that, but that's right. Like, two, they're, yeah, they're planning. Just, ah, I feel really good about myself tonight, you know. Um, I, I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing they have to show up for practice and do, like, dribble things. <laughs> drills? They call them drills in basketball? Is that soccer? Both drills? Gerald's nodding at me. You don't play that, but you kind of play that. Whatever. The point is, my point is, you never mature past the basics of apprenticeship to Jesus. A daily quiet time, Sabbath, church, life in community. Sadly, some people think that they do and end up in that kind of post-Bible or post-church world. And in my experience, just, and again, antidotal evidence, is most of them stall out at that point in their spiritual formation. But as we age, we realize more and more that God is in charge of our spiritual formation, not us. Um, We realize that we're the raw materials. God's the architect and the builder of our house. And so life becomes a little bit less about doing, which is good and important in the first half of life. And it's still good in the second half. It's just not nearly as important. And it becomes more and more about being. That's why you hear so many older people talk about being versus doing, right? That's not good advice for an 18-year-old. Don't tell an 18-year-old. Like, when second half of life people give second half of life advice to first half of life people, it's not good. So don't tell, like, an 18-year-old, it's really just about being, not doing. Like, an 18-year-old in this city does not need to hear that. They need to hear, like, get a job and move out of your parents' basement and do something with your life, right? But when that same person is 38 or 48, the odds are they need to hear more than ever. It's about being. It's about Sabbath. It's about rest. So it's always both and, but more and more as you age and enter the second half. Finally, this does not mean that we roll over and play dead. So acceptance is not acquiescence. I would imagine it would be easy to hear this and misinterpret it to think, well, won't this lead to just kind of a lazy, fatalistic defeatism? My answer to that is a a resounding no. It's what one of my mentors calls active acceptance, meaning we're active. We do everything we can to fix the problems in our life. And then once we can't control stuff, which is, turns out, most of our life, at that point, we shift to acceptance or detachment or indifference or passive spirituality, whatever you want to call it. We all face problems in life. And since most of like, life is basically just a series of problems, that's one way to interpret it. Not the most positive way, but it is accurate. And... 
we err in our spiritual journey if and when we focus more on external solutions than internal solutions to our problems, meaning we focus more on how to manipulate the people and circumstances of our life to make us happy than on how to become the kind of people who are happy no matter, no matter the people or circumstances or lack of people or lack of circumstances. Life If we don't make that shift, like if all of our life is about problem-solving to live happy, that's our strategy, life just becomes one endless game of whack-a-mole. You know what I mean? Where like you fix one problem, and another one comes up. And you fix another problem, you have like a split second of everything's good. And then another problem comes up, and it just becomes this for a life. And I'm all for problem-solving. It's great. But at some point, we all realize that the deepest problems cannot be solved that some of the deepest problems can only be embraced, forgiven, released, and accepted as an act of trust. And it takes discernment to know when to shift from problem-solving to acceptance. Um, I think of the Serenity Prayer, which was popularized by AA. It actually was written by a 20th century well-known theologian, Richard Neubauer. It's, and most people only quote the first line. It's so beautiful. I literally have it in the back of my Bible because I pray this pretty much every single day as a part of where I'm at in life. But I love this. God, give me the grace to accept with serenity or peace the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. What a great prayer. It goes on, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world, here it is, as it is, not as I would have it. Reality, not fantasy. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will. So that I may be, and again, I love the honesty here, reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. This was not written for addicts. This was just written for followers of Jesus. But it makes sense that it would be adopted by alcoholics because what is an addiction, which is far more common than most of us realize? It's an attempt to escape the pain of reality and to escape into a fantasy. The invitation of Jesus is to come back to reality and to meet Jesus there. Now, we're out of time, so let me make this really quick. Just chat for a moment about how to kind of take this conceptual category and adopt it into your everyday life. Very simple framework for how we follow Jesus and mature. If you wanted to, there's no formula, but if you wanted to kind of put it into a very simple way, I would say it's just this. Make space, move toward the pain, and accept the invitations of Jesus in your stage and season. Make space. That's really what all of active spirituality, all of the practices are about. They're basically about how to slow down and simplify your life to make space in your mind and body for the spirit and truth of God, which it turns out, in my experience, is the hardest part of the whole thing. Second, move toward the pain. It's in our pain that Jesus does some of his best work. Read the four gospels. Where does Jesus meet people more than nine times out of ten? In their pain. He meets Mary Magdalene and her demonization. He meets Bartimaeus in his blindness. He meets the woman with the flow of blood in her chronic illness. He meets Matthew in his social ostracization. He meets Nicodemus in his doubt and questions. This is what Jesus does. He meets people in their pain, and he doesn't skip over it and say, just ignore that and follow me. He meets people there, does the work of healing, or he would call it salvation, and then says, all right, now come 
and follow me. The great lie of the enemy is that we heal by moving away from our pain, when in reality we heal by moving toward our pain, facing reality, and facing the love of God in that space. And finally, accept the invitations of Jesus in our stage and our season. I love this from Ron Roheiser in Sacred Fire. Again, it's in our recommended reading. He ra- this is his one-paragraph summary of how we grow. We mature by meeting life just as God and nature designed it and accepting, there's our language, accepting there the invitations that beckon us ever deeper into the heart of life itself. This has been our language for weeks now. What are the invitations of Jesus in your stage and your season, your state of life, your cross, your joy? What are Jesus' invitations to you in the here and now? But that, as far as I can tell, is basically it. Make space, move toward the pain, accept the invitations of Jesus right here, right now. On that note, our practice for the week up ahead is all on practicingtheway.org slash naming. We have a very simple journaling exercise where the idea is just you sit around with your community after dinner, invite the Holy Spirit, just come to quiet, and then just take 15, 20 minutes max to just journal and answer, or just think and answer to two questions. One, what does active spirituality look like in your life right now? Do you have a rule of life? Is it in writing? What is a way of life that you think um, is productive to the life that Jesus has for you? Is there a next step forward or practice that you feel like Jesus is calling you to step into or Sabbath or whatever it is, community? Second, those are the two of the big ones, I think, for people to step into Sabbath and step into community. And then second, what does passive spirituality look like in your life in this stage and season? Or another way, where is the pain and what are Jesus' invitations to you in the pain? Is it something that you need to fight and problem solve or something that you need to accept or a mixture of both? And the idea is you just would sit, take a few minutes, journal that, and then process that together as a community or in ones and twos. That's it. Let's stand together and pray. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church give for more information. Thanks for listening.